we're going to keep things pretty simple this morning. Um, but we do want to finish our series for December. And I wanted to finish in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. So if you want to open up there. For the last three weeks, we've been... um, looking at these expectations that were laid on particular children in the Old Testament. Um, and, and in each case, the, the people as significant as they were, you know, Noah, who in incredible faith trusts God and puts his, you know, nose to the grindstone to, to build this ship, um, and, and because of it, he and his family survives the flood. We have Joseph, who in very difficult and trying circumstances, not only never lose, loses hope, but begins to see that his crisis was a calling and uses it to provide not just for his brothers and his family, Israel, um, but for the known world with his wisdom and execution. Um, and then we, we looked at Solomon who, um, for as much as he gets wrong in his life, begins well with a proper heart to lead well and knows that he needs God to do so. And, and God tremendously blesses him, but none of them fill the shoes of expectation. In fact, every one of those stories seems to have written into the story an understanding that they were waiting for something more. Um, but what's interesting about the, uh, the announcement that we look at this morning is that it's unexpected. In every other case, um, there's already children on the playing field. And here, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, she's just a young, engaged teenage woman who's never known a man um, kids aren't really on her radar. Um, and, and so when the statement is given, as we read it this morning, I want you to notice two things, and I'll give them to you right up front. The first is that this is clearly the one we've been waiting for, that this is the expected one. And I want you to notice, especially if you've been with us over the last month, how much of the language is drawn from the places we've already read and from the um, announcements we've already looked at. But I also, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, I want to focus on what's unexpected about this reality, what's new. It is, it is both the fulfillment of old promises and the announcement of something completely new. And that's what makes um, this story so significant. And so if you look with me, let's, um, let's just read together here. Um, actually in chapter one, in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel uh, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, it seems fitting um, that we look at this text the day after Christmas, because I know that some of us already are like, all right, Christmas is over, time to put the decorations away, time to get ready for the next year. Um, but, uh, but I ask that you'd help us to see this morning that what we celebrate at Christmas is, is a permanent change of the ages, uh, a transition um, that brings about something new, and that something new is is eternal. And I ask God that you'd help us to understand that the significance of Christmas is not not a one-day event, Lord, um, but an eternal reality that for the rest of time will mark the character of God and our destiny as his people. We pray that you'd help us to see this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, picking up the thread from where we were last week when we were in the days of Solomon, hundreds and hundreds of years have passed. And if you were to read, starting in um, starting in First Kings all the way through, or picking up in Second Chronicles and read all the way through, um, Israel's basically on a downward trajectory. And along with that downward trajectory, so also is the house of David. And so if, if you were to just trace it on a chart from the glory days of Israel, there's a steady decline. And what b- begins is the sins of Solomon become the sins of his court and then the sins of the people. And what begins is the idolatrous worship of Solomon's wives becomes the standard practice of Israel And then you see the 10 northern tribes who are split off because of Solomon's half-heartedness. And they just spiral even quicker and they're removed by the Assyrians. And then eventually the house of David and its last king, Jehoiachin, Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon and he's taken and put in shackles. And so goes the household of David. And after that, what happens is Babylon is conquered by the Medio Persians, and then they're conquered by the Greeks, and then they're conquered by the Romans. And at no point does Israel come back into independence. At no point does a Jewish king step back into the throne. In fact, the family of David, of the tribe of Judah, declines into abject poverty and is basically forgotten about. And so here we find we find Mary, a descendant of David, not in a palace. And Joseph, her husband, another descendant of David, not in Jerusalem, but in a a podunk town of Nazareth, way up in the northern area of Israel, of Galilee, forgotten. 
And at this point, there was a great expectation for a Messiah. But it amazes me that even when you read this story and Herod hears from the wise men about the birth of the Messiah, they have to open the books and check, right? Where is he to be born again? And they have to dig through the scrolls and they're like, oh, right, Micah says it'll be in Bethlehem, right? The expectation has lost a lot of its scriptural precedent and has grown into this political, cultural hope that has been dislodged from the promises. And so Mary may be shocked by the appearance of this angel, um, but that's what we see with Zechariah, the father of John, a few verses earlier as well. The expectation that God might actually show up and do something. Um, you know, the, the books of the Bible, the last ones to be written, um, were 400 years before the opening pages of the Gospel of Luke. God has been silent. And so the appearance of messengers, again, is new. And so Mary's surprise here is, is for a lot of reasons. She's, she's shocked to see an angel and she's shocked by this announcement. Um, but at the same time, we have this sense in just the first reading that although Israel may have forgotten the promises, God has not. And like I said in my introduction, it's striking here that the angel's language is the language that we've seen in the Old Testament. And so notice what he says here. He says in verse 32, he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. That's drawn right out of first Samuel chapter seven that we looked at last week. Here he is, the son of David that we've been expecting. And it doesn't end there. Look at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Right. There is the dream of Joseph that Jacob points forward and says, it's one of your descendants, Judah, that's going to reign over the family, over the house of Jacob, right? And even what we saw with uh, the son of Adam and with Noah has, um, has some touch points here because this birth is going to be a virgin birth. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, when Adam and Eve first rebel against God and God lays out the consequences and he talks about the fact um, that, that giving birth will now be painful, that farming will now be painful, that death will now be prevalent, that the land will be cursed for their sake, all of these things. Right in the middle, he gives a very cryptic promise. In Genesis 3.15, it says, and I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he the serpent will bite his heel, but he, the seed of woman, will crush his head. And at the time, it's very ambiguous. And like, um, like any good storyteller, it's mostly foreshadowing. You can't really see anything of significance in it. It's almost a, it's almost a paradox or an enigma. But as you keep reading, those blanks get filled in. But even from the beginning, one of the things that's mysterious about that statement is that it refers to the seed of woman. And when you look at the way that Israel chases their genealogy, it's always through the father. In fact, when it uses the language of seed, it, it refers to the semen of a man. The, the, even the metaphor itself is a male metaphor. And so the seed of woman is a strange statement and unique in all of the Old Testament. And we see as well a promise in Isaiah 
And this is what Matthew focuses on in his telling, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. But all that, although that word can mean virgin, it doesn't always. And it's such a staggering prediction. Like many of the conversations Jesus has with his disciples, there's a tendency in the world that Jesus is born into to downgrade those predictions to make them easier to swallow. How many times did Jesus' disciples go, oh, you must actually mean, you know, you're not actually going to die like the suffering servant. This is talking about something else, right, Jesus? It, the whole culture has this tendency to slightly adjust and make, make the promises fit the circumstances instead of the circumstances, the promises. But nonetheless, here we have the looked for son of Adam, the seed of woman. It's all coming together here. And when we open the pages of our New Testament, we need to recognize that the Old Testament is a book of anticipation and expectation. That it doesn't end with a, and they all live happily ever after. In fact, it ends with a worse condition than it begins with. It ends with no nation of Israel, with no one on the throne, with, um, with a temple rebuilt that is so sad that the people who saw the temple in the days of Solomon weep at its dedication. Okay. And the question for all of Israel at those days is, is God done with Israel? Have we sinned so greatly, so deeply that the, the plan has changed? And it's amazing, isn't it? That even though we sometimes make a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which chronologically begins earlier than any of the other Gospels, right? Because it starts with the birth of John, whereas Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus. And so chronologically, the opening event of the New Testament is when Zechariah, John's father, is ministering in the temple and this angel appears, right? But it's amazing how in these opening chapters, it's just basically Old Testament language. And when we find even Mary and Joseph and they have this baby, what do they do? They take him to the temple. They circumcise him according to the law. They give the offering according to the law, right? There is uh, a reality here where the Old Testament is completed by the New Testament and the New Testament doesn't stand on its own. There's a continuity here. And so what we see first and foremost here is that the expectations of Israel, which were based on the promises of God, are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. That the one who is truly greater than Noah and greater than Joseph and greater than um, then Solomon is here in this announcement and with him, all of the things that God had promised to do. And so that's all expected. If, if you read the Old Testament, if you study the Old Testament, if like the Jews, you've spent your entire life wading through the scriptures and you read this passage, it's, um, it's full of fulfillment. And at the same time, there's something that's so tremendously unexpected. And, and obviously, part of that unexpected is, here is a young teenage woman who's never no, known a man, and without the help of a man, she's going to have a baby. And that's one that we often trip up on. One of my um, favorite sci-fi books um, is called The Children of Men. And it's about a time just slightly ahead of our own timeline. In fact, I believe it takes place in 2021. I just reread it this year. Um, where, where mysteriously the whole world stops being able to conceive children. 
And it's the story of the despair that comes over the world as, as the last kids born become teenagers and then young adults. And now it's been decades since a child was born and the end of humanity seems inevitable. And then suddenly and miraculously and mysteriously, a woman conceives. And the author explains in a commentary on the book that she was trying to write the children of men to help us as moderns be in this position here. Because a virgin birth is so unconceivable, she created a world where a birth would be as shocking and surprising for us today. But the truth is, a virgin birth in the first century was just as unconceivable as it is today. This is just as miraculous and mysterious. And to be honest, it's not what is shocking or uh, surprising or unexpected about this passage. Because if you've read the Old Testament and if you believe that the God of Israel, who he is, uh, is who he says he is, then the virgin birth is unique, but not impossible. The God who made Adam without a mother can surely make another without a father. That's, that's not really where the issue lies in the virgin birth. The question is not really the question of how. In fact, if you want your answer, it's, it's given right here. It's just not helpful. Look at what it says, because Mary has the same question. How will this be? In verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I want you to notice, though, even Gabriel's not really interested in the how. He explains it. He says, this is something God is going to do. It's outside of the normal. It's beyond the confines. But as soon as he uses that word, therefore, he moves from how to purpose. Why the virgin birth? And this is what's so unexpected about this announcement. The reason why here the birth of Jesus is different is because Jesus will be more than human. He will be the very son of God. Now, oftentimes people debate if the New Testament really articulates Jesus as God. Often they debate if the earliest Christians even saw it this way. They debate if this phrase, the Son of God, which we find throughout the Gospels, really means that, that Jesus was in some way divine. However, it's worth pointing out a few things. One is, as similar as this language, Son of God, is to other Jewish phrases, it's really rare in the Old Testament. We encounter the sons of God, plural, which are always angelic beings. Okay. So even that use is unique. But the singular son of God is, is not a title. When God says, Israel, you will be my son, that's a corporate identity, right? There's these things. But also, three of the four Gospels open with a focus, like Luke does, on this unique aspect of Jesus. And so Matthew, like Luke, draws attention to the virgin birth and goes back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And what Isaiah says is the virgin will conceive and bear a child and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you follow Matthew through, one of the things he wants to show is the reality of God's divine presence in Jesus 
as if God was walking the earth. Luke takes this approach that we're reading here, and we see in that therefore statement, he shall be the son of God. The virgin birth is directly tied to that title. And then John is the most explicit of them all. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's unexpected about this announcement is not the method God uses. The method has to do with the purpose, and the purpose is that God is going to become a human being. That's what's unexpected here. And even if you read the Old Testament without the special glasses or the decoder ring of the New Testament, you wouldn't get this out of the Old Testament. What was so provocative about Jesus's ministry was who he said that he was. Why was it that people picked up stones to kill him? Why was it that he was called blasphemous by the high court and finally put to death? It's because he aligned himself with the identity of the God of Israel. It's very explicit and it's very unexpected. And even as the church came to realize that this miracle worker who rose from the dead, who claimed to be the I am of the Old Testament, must really be telling the truth. They began to read back into the Old Testament and see how these things must be. And so if you joined us for Christmas Eve, Pastor Wayne talked about how in Isaiah chapter 9, it's unto us a child is born, but also a son who is given. And if you read in uh, in, um, Micah, yes, he will be born in Bethlehem. And he will be the ruler from the family of David, but his origins are from everlasting. And if you read um, in in other places, there's this emphasis. <laughs> there's this emphasis across the Old Testament of mystery, of paradox. But we've been very well set up to understand, even if this is un- unexpected, that there's a sense where it is necessary. Because what was the problem with Noah? The tension of the story, as we talked about, of the flood is that God is trying to end the corruptive influence that is destroying the planet and humanity with it. But he doesn't have a way to do so without ending humanity. And so he graciously spares one family and sets them in a new world, cleansed like a fresh start, Adam 2.0. And yet just like Adam Noah sins. And just like Adam is cursed, Noah curses his descendants. And the pattern continues and it grows and God finishes the story as we saw, not saying now things will be okay, but saying I will not destroy the earth again, even though things are just as they have been. In the same way, when we get to Joseph, we see God's provision But there's still this tension of, yes, God is capable of using evil to accomplish his good. But how does he make people good? How does he do this change? And even Judah, who's chosen to be the descendant, we do see progress. We do see growth. But it's hard to uphold Judah as a bastion of righteousness, as as a role model for your children. In fact, the story about Judah and Tamar is not one we even tell our kids. He's not one of the heroes of the Old Testament, but one of his descendants. And then especially we see this with Solomon. Here, every advantage 
the very word of God, the provision of God in providing of a land, the um, you know provision of peace through God's working through David, the building of the temple, God dwelling in its presence, wisdom and wealth and prosperity. And yet Israel is corrupt on the inside, decays, destroys, and loses its lampstand, to use New Testament language, very quickly. And as we saw over and over again, what is needed is not something that human beings can provide. And so the unexpected here is what we call the incarnation. It's that God would become a man to do what we could not do. And again, remember, to do for us what we could not do. And, and this really is the, the heart of the gospel. We have to get to the cross. But the cross without the incarnation is at best a valuable example. At best a, a, a moral story. But instead, what we get in the New Testament is the God who did what we could not. Here, there's a few different ways to think about this that I find helpful. And one is with the language here of, of Son of God, because although it is unique in the Old Testament, once we get to the epistles, it's not unique at all. And so one way to think about this is that we were the, um, you know, we were made in the image of God. But then God came in the image of man so that we could be restored to the image of God. And I want you to notice that really clear trajectory, right? Fall, restoration, and God is the operative there. Or to put it another way, the Son of God became a child of men and women so that the children of men and women could become the sons and daughters of God. But the power and the beauty of the incarnation, I think, is best summed up in the title that both Matthew and Isaiah focus on Emmanuel, God with us, right? That, that's what makes Christmas such a powerful event to the degree that for the Christian kingdoms that grew out of this message over the course of the Western world for the next few centuries, they defined their calendars, not as here's a time when something happened, but here's a time where everything changed. And they do it not from the cross of Christ, but from the birth of Jesus. Because from that point, God has taken on flesh. And today, Jesus in the flesh dwells with the Father. And one day, we will be with him. And so that's, I think, the last way to put us is that God created us so we could be with us. Or so that we could be with him. But we left. We went away from him. And so in Jesus Christ, God came to where we were and dwelt among us so that he could bring us home so that we could dwell with him forever. This is, again, the trajectory of the good news. It is, it is the reality of the Christian message, and it is personified here in the God who took on flesh. Think of this, the creator of the world as we know it inscribed in the womb of a human being. The provider of all of our needs dependent upon his mother and father 
for everything as a young baby. The, um, you know, the God who gives life, taking on mortality. The God who is committed to goodness and whatever the opposite of suffering is, putting himself in a position of suffering. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffers. And I've always found that to be a really interesting statement because because Jesus is God. One, obedience isn't difficult. But two, in a sense, it's not a thing, right? Jesus became obedient. He stepped into life, humbled himself, and submitted to the Father in a way that he um, condescended to keep God's will on our behalf. This is the unexpected. This is the mystery. This is the profound evidence of God's love for us. And, and it's right, and this is how Paul puts it, that, that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that only makes sense if it's God himself who died in our place. Other than that, then it's just, it's just picking a sacrifice and saying, he can pay your sins. But, but this is a, no, I will bear the judgment on your behalf. And so I think it's appropriate to say that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were here about our lives, going about our business, Jesus was born. God in the flesh. And again, the thing that I want to impress upon us this morning is that Christmas isn't just an event. Uh, it's not just a small happening that needs to be remembered. It's a change. It's a, it's a demonstration of God's desire and commitment to be with us. And it has created the possibility so that God is with us. Not just was. Jesus wasn't just a, a passing through, but a permanent reality of the Son of God and the Son of Man, all in one, who conquered death, who has risen and will live forevermore. And if we read in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, again, that makes no sense without the God who is with us, Emmanuel. And when we read in the Gospel of John that, behold, I, I go to prepare a place for you so that you can be where I am. That doesn't make any sense without the reality that happens here. But the thing that I've been pondering um, more so than just the expected reality here or the unexpected reality of, of Jesus being not just the son of David, but the son of God. Um, the thing that I've been pondering on is just what kind of a God, what kind of a love, what kind of a commitment and a faithfulness so that God would devise a plan like this. He not only gives the promises and keeps them, he 
doesn't keep them by moving chess pieces around the board and secretly working towards his will. He does that for sure. But he does it primarily himself. He does it primarily by becoming what we need. He does it primarily by entering in and experiencing all that we experience. I don't know what type of a Christmas you had yesterday, but I know that it was a mixed bag. And it's so amazing that God knows it's a mixed bag, not just from omniscient, I know everything knowledge, but from experience and willful experience. When Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps with us. And when Jesus is angry at the injustice of his world and drives out, you know, the money changers, he's angry with us. Not, not just at us, but with us on our behalf for us. What does he say? He says, this was to be a place for the prayers of the Gentiles. And you've made it a den of thieves. When Jesus suffers, and not just sleepless nights and hunger and poverty, but suffers at the hand of those who have plotted his death and those who have embraced a horrible form of torture as their primary form of execution. He suffers with us. And it's not just sympathy or empathy. It's actively towards righting the wrong. It's actively towards fixing what's broken. But don't ever forget that it's actively towards bringing peace to the rebels. Right? Jesus' birth is an act of reconciliation that begins with a peace offering. And Jesus himself is the peace offering. And so this is why, you know, we can live today with Emmanuel, with the God who is with us. This is why we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace, to quote the language of Paul. This is why we can, you know, need not be afraid for God is with us. This is why we can trust that when we sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the heartbeat and the core and the foundation of the new reality, of the New Testament, of the new covenant. Because God didn't just say, here is the plan for how to fix this. And if you're interested and capable, these are the steps that will set things right. Instead, he said, here's what I'm going to do. And then he took on human flesh and he did it. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't think we understand the power of that name, Emmanuel, of the God who is with us. And I just pray that you would protect us from, um, from leaving this birth as, a, as an event of significance in, instead of the um, defining mark of our age as the great transition in history, as the beginning of the kingdom of God and the victory that you had promised and the salvation that you were bringing and moving towards 
the goal that nothing would separate us from the love of God and that we would be with you forever. And that as it says in the book of Revelation, that the God, our Father, and the Lamb that was slain will be in the midst of his people forever. God, we're a people who are drawn to heroes. We're a people who look for help. We are a people who need others to hope in and recognize that, um, that, that we need heroes and saviors and these types of things. But, but none of us can be the savior that we need because we're in need of saving. And none of us can free others from the chains of slavery because we ourselves are enslaved. And none of us can bring life where there is death because we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we just rejoice this morning. We rejoice that while that was the case, in the midst of the darkness, the light of God shone. While that was the case, in the midst of rebellion, Jesus came and made himself a peace offering. And while that was the case, in the midst of our despair, God himself became the hope of his people. And hope in a little human baby who was the incarnate God. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.